And today I want to talk about the afterlife of the Akedah in uh, the uh, ongoing Jewish and Christian and Muslim traditions. Now that's a big topic. I'm not going to speak for more than 45 minutes, then we'll have a question. So I'm going to leave out about 99.999% of, of what I might have uh, said. Uh, of course, moderns, as many of you uh, know, as all of you know, as some of you have expressed, have a lot of problems with the story. In modern times, people, uh, as I see it, have lost a sense of sacrifice. Uh, we all, myself included, find the phenomenon of sacrifice, the institution of sacrifice, although central to the Torah, and although extremely important to the rabbis, even though they're no longer able, able to uh, put it into effect in their time, uh, extremely important to them, we find it odd, we can't quite figure it out. It's almost as problematic and controversial and difficult in modern times as it was accepted and esteemed in antiquity. And that's one of the problems of attempting as moderns uh, to appropriate an ancient literature as a normative uh, foundational uh, text. Um, the, uh, to the rabbis, it's interesting how central the Akedah becomes in rabbinic Judaism. If you ask me what in the mind of the rabbis was the most important event in history as they understood history, namely in their scripture, I would say it would be in the most, one of the, with the most ramifications and reverberations, I would say there would be two possibilities. One would be the Akedah, and the other would be the acceptance of the Torah on Mount Sinai. And to some extent, they even uh, interweave the two things, uh, even become interwoven in uh, rabbinic literature. So this is an extremely important event to them and one that has to be reckoned with. And they don't reckon with it uh, with this notion of trying to get over it or explain it away. He was an abusive father or whatever. Uh, they see it as a precious event. One sign of that is in the Siddur. I'll just read you this. I didn't put it on the handout because it's only about one line. But this actually makes it into the Siddur, into the traditional Jewish uh, prayer book. The Akedah itself comes in as a preface to all the other sacrifices in the early part of the Shacharit service, of the morning service in the traditional uh, Siddur. And there is this rather extraordinary uh, statement. It says, Just as Abraham, our father, overcame his compassion, his mercy, his tender feelings, uh, from his, took away those compassionate feelings from his only son, his favorite son, however we translated that, and was willing to sacrifice him willing really to shecht him, to sacrifice him, to slaughter him uh, sacrificially, in order to do your will, God. Okay, he was willing to take away his compassion for his son uh, and, and to do your will, God. Thus may you, you uh, overcome your anger uh, from, uh, from uh, us. May your compassion overcome your anger from us. In other words, as Abraham could have felt compassionate, did feel compassion, but overcame that because his religiousness had to do with obeying a command of God, not just simply putting his own feelings into effect. Similarly, should you allow your compassion to overcome something you feel towards us, which is to say anger. We, we fail, we sin, we do horrible things. Uh, may the memory of the Akedah come before you, O Lord, to stand to our credit. It's as though we are sinful, but Abraham did an act that can overcome that sin and should overcome your anger towards us. 
This is a very, very important part of Jewish liturgy. It pervades the Rosh Hashanah liturgy uh, into the Middle Ages. Many of the piyotim, the prayers in poetry that are read on Rosh Hashanah are full of this particular notion. The Akedah is, a, is, is a, a moment of perfect obedience. And like all obedience, all perfect obedience, it's very, very painful. It involves enormous amount of emotional sacrifice uh, and an enormous, enormous amount of emotional self-control. As Abraham had that self-control, this text is saying, so should you have this, uh, so the self-control to overcome your anger, justified anger, towards us. This becomes a very, very important point in, uh, in rabbinic Judaism. And another important point you see on page 4 of your handout, uh, text 10. Text 10 is another midrashic text from Breshit Rabbah, from a collection of, of uh, midrashim put together in uh, Roman Palestine, probably around the 5th century. Uh, but it, it, uh, it makes a point that reverberates throughout the continuing Jewish tradition and throughout Jewish uh, prayer. When Abraham looked up, his eye fell upon a ram. Then there's a strange word there, achar. Uh, afterward, after, just after, it was caught in the thicket by its horns. There's a huge dispute among commentators into modern times as to exactly what that word means there. It seems strange there. And in fact, there is even a, uh, uh, a text-critical variant that reads not Eil uh, achar, but Eil Echad, one ram, a certain ram, saw a certain ram uh, caught. Uh, but that's not the, the Masora, the traditional text. So it says, what does Achar mean here at the bottom of page four? Said Rabbi Yudan, after Achar, all that happened, Israel still fall into the clutches of sin and in consequence become the victims of persecution. Yet they will ultimately be redeemed by the ram's horn, as it says, and the Lord God will blow the horn, etc. If in the book of Zechariah, a prophecy of eschatological of future redemption. So the horn, the shofar that's blown for redemption, is connected here with the horn of the ram, which is a different word. It's the word karen in Genesis 22. But the horn of the ram that's caught in the thicket by its, by its horns. Uh, the... Um, so, in other words, what we're enacting here, what Abraham is enacting, according to this Midrash, he's in a sense pre-enacting the future redemption of the Jews. We fall into sin, we suffer persecution, we seem to be finished, we seem to have no, no uh, future, uh, and then uh, uh, God mysteriously uh, and graciously uh, intervenes and we're uh, recovered again. And eventually there will be a final uh, a messianic event uh, heralded by the blowing of the horn. So you can see how that horn comes to be associated with the shofar of Rosh Hashanah, and therefore you can see how eventually this text comes to be read on uh, Rosh Hashanah as the text read on, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, two days are observed. Okay. Um, uh, yet, uh, Rabbi Hanina bar Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi uh, Hanina, son of Rabbi Isaac, says, this is the middle of the first paragraph on page five, Throughout the year, Israel are in sin's clutches and led astray by their troubles. But on the new year, on Rosh Hashanah, they take the shofar and blow on it. And eventually they will be redeemed by the ram's horn. As it says, the Lord God will blow the horn. Again, uh, picking up that Zechariah 9.14 verse. So the horn of the ram here uh, at the end of the Akedah is, uh, a symbol, uh, symbolizes redemption. It symbolizes, obviously, the redemption of Isaac 
from death and symbolizes the redemption of Israel from uh, persecution uh, through the uh, final eschatological blowing of the shofar. Rabbi Abba, son of Rabbi Papi, and uh, he was a big fan of David Ortiz. And Rabbi Joshua, a little Boston language, they call the, the designated hitter for the Red Sox, uh, David Ortiz, they call him Big Papi. Uh, uh, and Rabbi, uh, maybe I should get myself a t-shirt to wear to Fenway Park saying, uh, Rabbi Abba, son of Rabbi Poppy, since I'm both an Abba and I could admire of Poppy. And Rabbi Joshua of Sechnin said, and Rabbi Levi's name, third century rabbis in the land of Israel said, because the patriarch Abraham saw the ram extricate itself from one thicket and go and get entangled in another, I think maybe reading this achar as if it's acher, another, the Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, so will your children, your descendants, be entangled in countries, changing from Babylon to Media, from Media to Greece, from Greece to Edom, meaning Rome, which is who rules the time this rabbi is saying this, yet they will eventually be redeemed by the ram's horn, as is written, and the Lord God will blow the horn, and the Lord of hosts will uh, defend them. So he uh, interprets this uh, being caught in another thicket, that's how they read it, being caught in another thicket as, yes, the Jews go from one persecuted environment to another, one expulsion, another absorption, follow another expulsion, but that pattern eventually ends as a result of divine intervention. So you can see how the key thing for the rabbis about the, and for the continuing Jewish tradition about the Akedah is not some connection with child sacrifice or anything like that. The key thing is Abraham's exemplary obedience the internal sacrifice that he himself made emotionally in order to carry out that act of obedience, to do the will of God rather than just to answer to his own feelings, uh, and also the way in which the Akedah has some sort of salvific effect, some effect, on, a redemptive effect on the uh, uh, fortunes of the people of Israel through all the uh, generations. And as I say, this, uh, this reverberates throughout the Machzor for Rosh Hashanah, especially, and throughout medieval Jewish uh, poetry, liturgical poetry, some of which is quite exquisite, but the Agadah becomes extremely important. Now let me shift gears and talk about Christianity for a few minutes. I said the first night when we uh, took advantage of the uh, gracious hospitality of Angie Freeman at her house that uh, the uh, <clears throat> story of the Akedah has a lot in common with the 10th plague. That is to say, the death of the firstborn averted through the effects of the slaughter of the Korban Pesach of the Paschal Lamb. Uh, you can see uh, that the, uh, the death of, uh, sacrificial death of Isaac in the Agedah is averted through this ram. God calls it off, but oddly enough, God calls it off, and then Abraham sees the ram caught in the thicket by its horns, and then, without being told to, sacrifices the ram. Uh, the sheep substituting for the sun is something that we have uh, uh, evidence of uh, elsewhere in the ancient Near East. Uh, I once wrote an eminently purchasable book called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. I always tell my students, you know, some faculty, you know, they do, they hand out a syllabus. They've got the, uh, they have their own works on there. People are supposed to read their own books. I find that very arrogant, egocentric, narcissistic. I tell my students, you don't have to read anything I write. Just buy it. <laughs> I, I need my 31 cents per copy. I just buy the thing. I don't care if you read it. Buy it, put it under your Christmas tree. I don't care. Give, give it for Mishloch, Manot, Purim. I don't care what you do with it. Um, but, the, um, but in there, I have some texts, uh, Punic texts, texts ultimately of Phoenician origin, in which the, uh, a child vowed to a god 
is redeemed through the substitution of a sheep. Interesting enough. Uh, now, um, so you got those two things. You got those two stories that seem very similar. You see, in other words, another way of putting it is that there is uh, one, let's say, ritual complex, which is to say the child is to be sacrificed, but a god or the gods uh, generously and graciously allow an exception, an exemption. You can, in fact, substitute a sheep or substitute the pigeon and as we talked about the other night, substitute the buying back of the firstborn. Uh, and you might say this has two narrative realizations. One is Genesis 22 that we've been talking about, and the other, we'll say, is the Passover lamb. They have a lot in common, those two stories. You might say those two stories are two narrative realizations of this underlying ritual. But I think it was inevitable, knowing how Midrash works, that these two would again merge. These two would merge. And a book called Jubilees, which is in, from the second century, mid-second century BCE, long before the rabbis, a Jewish book called Jubilees, not, not part of our canon, uh, not part of the rabbinic canon, and not, not part of the Christian canon, the book of Jubilees, you actually see the Akedah takes place on Pesach. In other words, they actually get to the mountain. The actual binding takes place on Pesach, which is to say Isaac is, in effect, the first Paschal lamb. Now, do you see these two stories merging there at Passover? It looks as though, in origin, the closest associations of Rosh Hashanah, were, uh, excuse me, of the Akedah, of the binding of Isaac, were not with Rosh Hashanah. That seems to have happened in the second century of the common era by the rabbis. It seems though the earliest connections were with Passover. There are a number of connections with uh, Passover there. All right, now let's jump ahead. About the, year G about the year 30, Jesus is executed. He's executed either on Passover, if you follow the view of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or the day before Passover, if you follow John. In other words, John has this taking place in a year. The fourth gospel, the gospel of John, has this taking place in a year when Pesach begins Friday night. Uh, and the uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it when Passover is occurring Thursday night. That's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a Last Supper, which seems a lot like a Passover Seder. Not totally, but it has some resemblances. John has no Last Supper. All right. But either way, Jesus is being executed about the time of Passover. There's a lot of sun language that's applied in the New Testament. Who knows how early? Sun language applied to uh, Abraham, to, to, uh, to uh, Jesus. Son of man, son of God, uh, a lot of sun language applied to him. Uh, now, of course, within the Jewish context, the son par excellence is, is Isaac. And if you say Isaac was to be sacrificed at Passover, and you have Jesus being crucified, and you have the, you have the death of Jesus being interpreted sacrificially, a certain point coming to be interpreted sacrificially, then it's natural that you would expect an Isaac-Jesus equation. Isaac, Jesus equals Isaac. Put it there, Jesus picks up a lot of the Isaac uh, quality. Jesus, you might, you might put it this way. I'm going to erase this afterwards, lest uh, somebody from the Federation come in and think that the Jew for Jesus has been, has been talking. <laughs> but you might say uh, Isaac equals the Passover lamb. And Jesus equals the Passover lamb. Therefore, as any good math teacher can tell you, Isaac equals Jesus. You see, if the two are equal to the third term, they must be equal to each other. So, uh, in fact, the Apostle Paul actually describes, in his first, his first letter to the Corinthians, he actually describes 
Jesus is our Paschal offering. In other words, you have this sacrificial interpretation of the death of Jesus uh, as uh, uh, equivalent to the death of the Paschal lamb. Remember, the temple is still standing at this point. In the Gospel of John, which has Passover remembering beginning on Friday night, in other words, the night of Good Friday, Friday night, you've got in the middle of the afternoon, you've got Jesus on the cross dying, it says, as the lambs are being herded into the temple to be sacrificed. And in fact, the first thing that's said in the presence of Jesus in the Gospel of John is John the Baptist saying, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Lamb language is Passover language, but it has Isaac connections long before Christianity emerges. All right, so I want to show you one way in which that works in Christianity. This is text 11. This is from the Apostle Paul's last letter, letter to the Romans, probably written, oh, I don't know, about the year 62, something like that. And this is just a little passage. Well, let me say one thing before we begin. Uh, I mentioned in earlier class, I think, uh, both classes, I mentioned that uh, Abraham becomes associated with, in, the, in Genesis 22, the fear of God. Uh, but as we saw even yesterday, he also becomes very much associated with the love of God. I mentioned that text in Isaiah, Isaiah 41.8. You are Zera Abraham Ohavi. You are the descendants of Abraham who loved me. Uh, love of God and then also the uh, faith in God. Those are things that Abraham becomes very much a, a, uh, a symbol of, a, a prototype of, a model of. Okay, now let's take a look at what Paul says here in Romans 8. We know all things work together for good for those who love God. I think in the Jewish context, when people hear that, those who love God, I think they're already thinking of Abraham. Who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. His son, which is Jesus, is supposed to be the firstborn of, uh, of, a, of a larger family. I don't know, I hear this love of God, I hear this firstborn thing, I hear this son language. Maybe it's just because I spend half my life thinking about the Akedah, which many people don't. I've met people that don't. Uh, but, uh, or as I've read that there's such people. Uh, but uh, to me, um, this, uh, this is already suggesting to me Akedah language. But let, let's, let's go a little further. And those whom, uh, whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We won't have to... Uh, I go into all that. Verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? The key verse is 31, uh, th uh, 32. He who did not withhold his own son. The Greek here is phedomai. When you look at the Septuagint, the Jewish translation of the, the Torah into Greek, when it says, you do not withhold your son, lo you do not withhold your son. Uh, when God says that to Abraham, the Greek word is the same word, phedomai. Right? You do not withhold your son. Um, you do not spare your son, not withhold your son. So um, he who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not also give us everything else? The great event in history, as Paul sees it, is that God did a kind of akedah. God did not withhold. God might have chosen to withhold his son. 
His love for his son might have overcome his willingness to give. He might, not, he might have shrunk from the sacrifice. Just as R.C. Dewar says, uh, Abraham might have but didn't shrink from sacrificing uh, Isaac. He was willing to do it. Uh, his his uh, uh, obedience to God overcame his, his rachamim, his compassion. Similarly for Paul, that's what God did. God demonstrated his ultimate commitment to us by doing a kind of akedah. The same way in Genesis 22, Abraham demonstrates his ultimate commitment to God through the akedah. So in a certain way, if, if Isaac equals Jesus, we'll make this little math class. If Isaac equals Jesus, okay, so that's the first part of the equation. It's been so long. I, I really was never much good at math. And uh, although I loved algebra too, it was the best three years of my life. Uh, but, the, uh, but if Isaac equals Jesus, okay, then Abraham equals whom? We're going to solve this equation. God. In other words, what you have in, in the, uh, especially big G there, uh, what you have in this particular midrash by Paul is a revisioning of God in the image of Abraham. God becomes a kind of Abraham figure. God becomes the father who does not withhold his son, but out of love gives his son sacrificially, just as Abraham is the father who did not withhold his son, but out of love, faith, whatever it is, fear of God, uh, gives, his, his, uh, gives uh, up his, uh, his son. And so the truth is that this Akedah has an enormous influence also in Christianity in a very basic way, in a very basic understanding of Christology, basic understanding of who Jesus was and what uh, happened in the world. And that, in a sense, means that for Christianity, the great, certainly for Pauline Christianity, certainly for Christianity in general, the great event was certainly not Matan Torah, Ma'amad Har Sinai, the Jews accepting the Torah on Mount Sinai, as it might have been, arguably is for the rabbis, but it's rather the Akedah, except the Akedah is a kind of foreshadowing of the larger Akedah in which the son actually dies. The son is resurrected from the dead, uh, but the son actually dies. The, type, the typological fulfillment exceeds the antitype uh, the modeling of it uh, that takes place in, in Genesis uh, 22. So that's one Christian use of this, very, very important Christian use. Now let's go to page 6, uh, text 12. This is from the epistle of James, a letter of James, a relatively late New Testament text. And I won't go into all the background of this, but there was in Christian discourse originating with Paul a tendency to talk about two things, grace and works, in to some degree opposition to each other. This is a huge, difficult topic. But James wants to say, uh, or faith and works, here it's faith and works, uh, as though if you have faith, you don't need any, any good works. Uh, and for Paul, the, the ideal proof of this is from Abraham. Because Abraham is reckoned as a tzaddik, right? Genesis 15, 6. He had faith, Abraham had faith in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness, understood by just about everybody in antiquity, everybody in antiquity as he, the Lord, reckoned Abraham as righteous. That's in Genesis 15. He's not circumcised till Genesis 17. So even before the cutoff date, 
He is, he, is, he is already reckoned righteous. And Abraham is living before the gift of the Torah. So do you really need the Torah to become righteous? Do you really need, if you want to follow Abraham, Abraham, Abraham is your spiritual model, Abraham is your spiritual ideal, Paul argued, you don't need uh, circumcision and you don't need uh, the mitzvot of the Torah because Abraham didn't have either of those when he was reckoned righteous. But what did he have? Amin Bashem, he had faith in the Lord. So in the Pauline Midrash, faith becomes the uh, defining, not only faith is the defining aspect of Abraham, but faith becomes the defining aspect of the relationship of God and human beings. Uh, but James, in a later generation, whoever's writing this epistle of James in a later generation is worried about this because he's a little worried that people are going to say, well, I have faith, I can do whatever I want. I have faith, I, I can do whatever I want. In other words, I don't need good deeds. I can, have, I, can have, I can have faith in God, and the faith in God does not have to be active in any deeds I do. Faith can be understood as an existential state, an emotional state, or a, uh, some sort of state of mind, or a religious stance or posture. You can have faith. You can have faith when you're you know, in a prison cell somewhere. You can have faith in unable to do anything, and you can have faith lying there, God forbid, paralyzed in a hospital. You can still have faith. So I don't need to do anything. Uh, James uh, doesn't like that, and most of ancient Christianity actually did not like that. So here's what he says. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Okay, you got your faith, I got my works. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. In other words, your faith doesn't amount to anything if there aren't any works. If you're not doing anything, the faith doesn't amount to anything. You say, I have faith, show me the faith. You can't show it, you can't show it to me. It's like the Zen story in Zen Buddhism where the, uh, the disciple says to his master, I have a troubled mind. He says, show it to me. And, you know, show me your faith. You know, if not doing anything, what is that? I'll show you my works, and by showing you my works, I'll show you that the, the works are demonstrating, realizing, uh, manifesting the faith. It says, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. It's good to be a monotheist. He says, even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons are monotheists. I mean, Satan is a monotheist, right? Big deal, you're a monotheist. You're in the same category as Satan. Big deal. Who cares if you believe there's only one God? Uh, Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? This is his point. This is James' point. Faith apart from works is barren. Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, that faith was brought to completion by the works. In other words, you may, have a, you may want to emphasize Abraham's faith that occurs in Genesis 15, but in Genesis 22, the key statement is that Abraham passed the test. He did something. He actually did something. Now, there's a background of this. It would take a long time to explain, but in, in very brief terms, let's just say this. The background here is that in Jewish exegesis and in Jewish interpretation of that key verse, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham had faith in the Lord and he reckoned it to him, the Lord reckoned to him as righteousness, that there was a long-standing Jewish tradition that said, although you find that verse in Genesis 15, it wasn't actually pronounced, it didn't actually apply until the end of Genesis 22. At the end of the Akedah is when God saw Abraham's faith and reckoned him a righteous person. You can see this. There are places where you can see this. You can see this in, uh, as I recall, First uh, Maccabees and Ben Sira, various books that are in the uh, Apocrypha, Jewish books from antiquity that for whatever reason are not part of our current Bible. Uh, so that's what James is saying. James is saying, you want to say, you want to make Abraham the, the paragon of faith without the need for works? Guess what? 
his faith caused him to be pronounced righteous only when he did a particular work. And what is the work he did there? The work he did there was his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. It was the Akedah. We can just go on and look at the rest of that text. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. That verse, Genesis 15, 6, that is in fact applicable to the Akedah in Genesis 22. It doesn't occur in the text in the place where it in fact applies. And he was called the friend of God, which I just mentioned. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute? You know the story of Rahab the prostitute who takes in the two spies in Joshua 2. The two spies that Joshua sends to scout out the land, and she protects them and so forth, and therefore she's the, she and her family are the only people in Jericho uh, that survive. Uh, Rahab the uh, prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road. And here's the key verse, 26. I love this verse, uh, uh, James 2, 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. If you look closely at that, it says the opposite. I find that especially Christian students think it says the opposite of what it does. You might have said the body corresponds to the works. You've got to do something physical to have, to have a, a deed. Whereas faith corresponds to the spirit. It's an internal spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. You know, I show up sometimes in bookstores, not shoplifting. And uh, I go up to the, for just out of self-punishment and masochism, I go up to the religion section and uh, it's amazing how often this happens that there'll be, I'll overhear a conversation, and one person will be saying to another, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I hear that all the time. Uh, I've already decided what I'm going to do next time I hear it. I'm going to say, oh, isn't that interesting? I'm the opposite. I'm religious, but I'm not spiritual. Just to see what the answer to that was. I mean, spirituality, what did that accomplish? A lot, of, a lot of good things came about because of religion. Some bad things, too, but a lot of good things, like hospitals, orphanages. A lot of those things happened because of religion, schools, universities, the origin of the university. How did spirituality without an institutional realization, what, what exactly has it accomplished? I'm not so sure it's accomplished much of anything. If it's going to accomplish anything, it has to become institutionalized. And people have to roll up their sleeves like Ari Katz and do the hard work. Uh, so here it looks like you're saying the body corresponds with the works and the spirit corresponds with faith, but actually it's the opposite. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. The faith is a dead body until it's brought to life through works. I've had a lot of students, a lot of people reading that, a lot of Christian students think it's the opposite. The body with its works is, a dead, is dead until faith brings it alive. It's actually saying the opposite. It's saying that the faith is dead unless there are works to bring it alive. So here again, you see that uh, Abraham becomes a, a model of the person who combines faith and works and whose faith is active in his actual deeds, what he actually does in, in, in life. And God pronounces him righteous, uh, because of his faith, but only after he, his faith is tested and realized, made concrete, manifested uh, in an actual uh, deed. All right, now let's talk about Islam. Any questions? No, just kidding, about Islam. Uh, no, um, verse 13. Uh, now, uh, as little as I know about everything else I've been talking about for the last three days, Islam I know even less about, so uh, if I seem ignorant... Uh, that's correct. Uh, the Quran, the Quran is a book whose name means the recitation uh, related to the Hebrew kara, to call out, to read, or mikra, meaning the scripture. That's actually the normal word the rabbis use for the scriptures, mikra, or katuv, or ketuvim, or kitvei kodesh. They don't use words, uh, Tanakh is a relatively later term. Uh, 
The Quran is a set of putative revelations that came to Muhammad in Arabia in the early 7th century of the Common Era. And in it, you see some material that's unique to the Quran, some material which is based on older Arabian uh, traditions, some material which is based on Christian traditions, and some material that's based on Jewish traditions, because Judas, excuse me, Judaism, uh, Christianity, and older uh, Arabian religion were all active in the Arabian Peninsula when Muhammad spoke. So this text here is from the 37th uh, surah, the 37th chapter here. Uh, and I thought I would begin before the key point here. This is text 13. This is the 37th surah, verse 65. I will just start reading here. Its shoots are like the heads of devils. They uh, eat from it till they fill their bodies. In addition, they have with it a mixture of boiling water. Then they return us to hell. Indeed, they have found their fathers steeped in error. And so they are fast following their footsteps. And before them, most of the ancients were in error. Most of the ancients were idolaters. You'd find the Jews saying this too. Uh, we had sent among them some warners, some prophets, some people to, to give them a heads up, because most people were in error. But behold, what was the fate of those who were warned? Except for Allah's, which means God, it's related to the Hebrew word Eloah, from which we get the plural Elohim, but you find in the Bible even Eloah, a uh, God. Uh, except for Allah's sincere servants. Noah called us in times past. So Noah here is interpreted as a prophet giving people warnings, something you find in Midrash. You don't see it in Genesis, but in Midrash you do find the idea Moet was a prophet warning people and everybody's just sort of laughing at him. Uh, blessed then are the answers, those who answer the prophet. We delivered him and his people from the great calamity, namely the flood, and made his progeny the survivors. Everybody who's alive is descended from Noah, according to this. Okay, um, because everybody except Noah and his, and his uh, children and their wives uh, uh, perished in the flood. And we bequeath to him among those who succeeded. Peace be upon Noah among all the nations. Okay, we're here at verse 80. Indeed, this is how we reward the, the beneficent. He was truly one of our believing servants. Noah is a believer. The notion is that Islam does not originate with Muhammad. Islam was around uh, uh, even in antiquity. People like Noah, uh, I think even Adam, were Muslim. Just as in Judaism, there's this notion that Torah is preexistent. And even a Midrash that God opens up the Torah to see how to create the world. Uh, or in Christianity, Jesus is the preexistent Logos. Jesus is the word that was around before the world was created and through which the world was created. All these religions have a notion that their most valuable things, Torah, Christ, uh, Koran, were uh, preexistent. Okay. Uh, uh, 82, then we drowned the others. Everybody except Noah and his family drowned. Now look where we go on in verse 83. And of his partisans, of those who sided with him or thought like him, was Abraham. When he came to his Lord with a sound heart. Uh, maybe uh, echoing Nehemiah 9, You found his heart, your, his heart, Abraham's heart, faithful before you. Maybe uh, echoing that. He said to his father and his own people, What are you worshiping? Do you desire falsely other gods apart from Allah? You don't see that in the Bible, as we mentioned the first night, but you do see that in, in a lot of later Jewish tradition, Abraham as uh, seeing through his father's idolatry. Uh, Abraham is extremely important. Ibrahim, as he's called, is extremely important in the Quran. Very, very important. More important than Moses or Jesus or any of these others. Uh, uh, what, do you, what do you think then of the Lord of the worlds? Then he cast a glance at the stars and said, I'm really sick. 
meaning I can't stand this astrology stuff. You people believe in astrology. It's a very major idea in Second Temple rabbinic Jews, especially Second Temple Jews, that Abraham saw through astrology, or as they would call it, astronomy, and realized that we're not just controlled by physics. There's something else in the world. We're not just physical beings, and the ultimate controller of the world is not the laws of physics, we would say. That might make it, that might make it more contemporary than calling it astrology. Uh, verse 90, whereupon they turned away from him in flight, and he turned towards their gods, saying, will you not eat? Why do you not speak? Why? Because they're idols. That's why they're not eating and speaking. Then he proceeded to hit them with his right hand. Then his people came toward him in haste. He said, do, do you worship what you hew when Allah created you and, and, what you and what you do? I don't know what that means exactly. They said, build him a pyre. And they cast him into the furnace. This is this notion, again, you find it in Midrash, that Abraham was cast by Nimrod into the fiery furnace because of his challenging the idolatry of his native land. Uh, verse 98, they wished him ill, but we reduced them to the lowest rung. And he said, I'm going to my Lord. He will guide me. Lord, grant me a righteous child. So we announced to him the good news of a prudent boy. Verse 102, then when he attained the age of consorting with him, he said, my son, I have seen in sleep that I am slaughtering you. Remember we saw in Genesis 22, he got up early in the morning to do this. I raised the question, is that perhaps because it was a dream vision. It was a revelation through sleep. He says, uh, I've seen in sleep that I'm slaughtering you. See what you think. Notice he asks Isaac's permission, clearly echoing those traditions we looked at yesterday about Isaac as a martyr, Isaac as a willing participant, not just like a dumb sheep being led to the uh, slaughter, uh, but a willing participant, a kind of martyr. See what you think. He said, my father, do what you are commanded and you will find me. Allah willing, one of the steadfast. Do what you're commanded and you'll see if God's willing, I will be uh, steadfast. Then when they both submitted and he flung him down upon his brow and we called out to him, we being God, O Abraham, you have believed the vision. Thus we reward the beneficent. This indeed is the manifest trial. And we ransomed him with a large sacrifice and we left with him for later generations. Peace be upon Abraham. Thus we reward the beneficent. He is indeed one of our believing servants. And we announced to him the good news of Isaac as a prophet, one of the righteous. And we blessed him and blessed Isaac and of their progeny. Some are beneficent and some are wronging themselves manifestly. And we have favored Moses and Aaron and delivered them and their people from great calamity. And we supported them. And so they were victors. And we gave them both the clarifying book uh, and uh, I, I think referring to the Torah there. And we guided them into the straight path, and we left with them for later generations. Peace be upon Moses and Aaron. Then we reward the beneficent. They are indeed among their living servants. So you have here a, uh, a kind of retelling of aspects of the Akedah. So the big question is, uh, according to this text, who is the son? Well, it doesn't say. The son is unknown. Now, I can't tell you. Uh, I could tell you, but I don't have time to tell you, some of the confrontations I've had with Muslims, fortunately neither they nor I was armed at the time, uh, uh, on this issue. The Quran does not name the son. The Quran does not name the son who was to be sacrificed. For the first two or three centuries of Islam, in other words, from, I don't know what, uh, uh, 650 to 850 in the Christian enumeration of years, uh, Christ Muslim commentators divided almost exactly in the middle, almost exactly the same number on each side. Some said this happened in Palestine and Isaac was the, the uh, son. Some say it happened in Arabia and Ishmael was the son. 
at a certain point, you could see Ishmael going up, and um, there's like the poll numbers, Ishmael's going up, and uh, Isaac is going down. So that today, you can meet Muslims, even fairly well-educated Muslims, who are amazed here there ever was a tradition that it was Isaac. And I've even had Muslims tell me, it's named right there, you know, it's right there. State geschrieben Meforish, they would say, except not in, uh, not in, not in uh, Yiddish. It's written right there in, in the Quran uh, that, it's, uh, that it's Ishmael. Ishmael's never mentioned in this text. Uh, you can make a case either way. Now, in, in favor of the idea, you could say one, uh, verse 112, we announced to him the good news of Isaac as a prophet, one of the righteous, and we blessed him and blessed Isaac, etc. Uh, does that mean Isaac is being born after this event, in which case Ishmael was the, was the uh, son, or is it just we announced the good news, he's going to be a prophet, and we good news, he's going to be righteous, and good news, he's going to inherit the promise? Uh, furthermore, the Quran is not in chronological order. It's a very important point. It, it, it's more free form. It has smaller units that are pasted together much more impressionistically. So you can't say read it as a continuous, you definitely can't read it as a continuous narrative. So um, what's interesting here is how important this act is. Uh, uh, this is a lot of verses in the Quran for a, uh, one particular biblical uh, episode. It's interesting to see that the son that the father has a, a, a dream that he's slaughtering and has to see what you think. And so Isaac, if it's Isaac, the son, whoever the son is, in verse 102, is actually uh, volunteering. In other words, he says, see what you think. He says, my father, do what you're commanded. You will find me, Allah willing, one of the steadfast. In other words, he, he says, asks for it. And that depends on a lot of Jewish tradition, some of which we looked at yesterday, that have Isaac as the willing participant uh, the, the, uh, show you how, how long-lasting that tradition is. This, is. this comes about in the early 7th century of the Common Era. Uh, in the 1st century of the Common Era, the Jewish historian Josephus, writing in Greek, in his Jewish antiquities, retelling the story of the Akedah, says that when Abraham told Isaac what he was going to do, which of course you don't see him exactly doing that in Genesis 22, Isaac rejoiced to be able to, to carry out not only the will of God, but also the will of his father at once. Now he's getting two mitzvahs at once. And he ran to the altar. He ran to the altar. And the Sifrei, uh, yeah, the Sifrei Dvarim, the Sifrei, early Midrashic collection on Deuteronomy, it says that Yitzchak hit he tied himself up on the altar. He tied himself up. All right, sort of like Houdini or something, because you could untie yourself, you could tie yourself. But, you know, uh, the idea is that uh, he's, he, he, it happens only with his consent. And here, Abraham said, you know, I saw, I had a dream, I was slaughtering you, what do you think? He said, do it, right? Uh, so, um, but this becomes a very important uh, 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 text in Islam, so much so that there's actually a ritual, I think it's called Eid al-Idha, if I'm not mistaken, the sacrifice ritual in connection with the Hajj, with, with the uh, pilgrimage to Mecca, where they actually uh, reenact this. Of course, they, they always think it's Ishmael. Today, they always they think it's Ishmael. 99.999% of the people going on the Hajj think it, they reenact Ishmael. Be very few, we learn enough to know that in the, early, uh, the early Muslim commentators uh, often thought it was Isaac. But it becomes a very, very important uh, uh, event, uh, namely the... Um, the uh, father's willingness to give up the son and the son's willingness uh, to uh, be a sacrifice. Thank you very much.